So let's turn together to Ephesians 3, and we'll read from verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. It's the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father, you know our frame and you know that we are but dust. Lord, how quickly our hearts get shaken by our sufferings. But Lord, I pray that you will use this very text, Lord. Use your word to come as a rock underneath us and even to prepare us, Lord, for future suffering. That we might stand strong in the faith and run until the end and endure till the end. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Beloved, if you are honest, that you will know that suffering has a way to unsettle us, to cause us to doubt, to cause us to worry or to be tempted to give up, to be tempted to throw in the towel. When someone is sick and we pray for them and the person dies instead of getting healed, we ask, does prayer even work? When a child dies, when someone gets cancer, when our work keeps piling up pressure after pressure, when we are in a horrible marriage, we feel stuck, our hearts become weaker and weaker until it feels like we just want to cave in under the weight. In, indeed, the Proverbs tells us that there's nothing worse than losing heart. There's nothing worse. Listen to Proverbs 18 verse 14. It says this. It says, A man's spirit will endure sickness but a crushed spirit who can bear. Did you notice that? With hope, you can even endure sickness. When you have hope, you can go through a trial. But a crushed spirit, who could bear that? Who can bear that? So general suffering in general areas of life can cause us to doubt. But what about suffering that comes to us uniquely and specifically because we are Christians? So these are not just the sufferings of mankind. These are sufferings we experience precisely because of our faith in Christ. What about when we suffer not because we are human, but because we are Christian and we want to be faithful to Jesus? Remember one of those promises in the Bible says, whoever wants to live a godly life, here's a promise, will be persecuted. This too can have a crushing effect on our hearts when we suffer for Christ. 
we are tempted to think, is this really worth it? Is this even really the truth? If it is the truth, why is it going so bad with us? Why are we regarded as sheep to be slaughtered? Why is this really worth it? The suffering can range from anything from criticism. Can you be so stupid to believe that? To beheading in a Muslim country because you follow Christ, right? Like some of our brothers and sisters at this very moment are experiencing. This is real. Let's be honest. We in South Africa, because of our, we've enjoyed some religious freedom, we might be very ill-prepared when serious persecution breaks out against us. You could say our persecution muscles are underworked, right? And we might find that when, when persecution strikes that our, our arms are too weak to pick up this weight. How will, how will we be ready? How can we not lose heart? How can we not throw in the towel, give up, or should I say when, not just if we suffer, but when we suffer? Beloved, surprisingly, that's what our text is about. This is what this section is all about. Because it was interesting, you, you might read it at first and think Paul is giving some biographical information about himself and the ministry. It's like, okay, nice, Paul, but I, I'm suffering here. I need help. I need hope. But that's where he's going. You notice at the end of verse 13, right at the end, that's where he's going. Look at verse 13. It says, So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. So Paul says, don't throw in the towel. Don't lose heart. Don't despair because of my suffering. And he says that because of verse 1. Look at verse 1 again. It says, for this reason, I, Paul, a what? A prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. So beloved, we were reading Ephesians happily, considering the eternal blessings we have, purposes of God, our Savior, right? In chapter 1, we just saw how we've been blessed. In chapter 2, we saw the work of Christ to save us and to unite us to one another. But now for the very first time in the book of Ephesians, Paul tells us that he is in prison. The very first time. And you, and the readers might read this and say, what, Paul? How can you be in prison? I mean, aren't you God's apostle? You are the best of the best. If that can happen to you, what is going to happen with us? If our leader is in prison, what's happening to the rest of us? You see, for weak, doubting sheep, the suffering of Paul could have been enough to cause their faith in Jesus to collapse. The suffering of Paul could have been enough to draw all our attention away from what God is doing and His eternal purposes in history and in our lives to this little, fleeting, temporary life. Isn't that what suffering does, right? It just almost glues your eyes upon this earth. So Paul pauses. He pauses his train of thought and reminds them of certain truths about himself and his ministry to encourage them. To say, listen, don't lose heart. Don't think that because I'm in prison that this is somehow a mistake or that God's plan has failed. No. Because he wanted to pray for them. Notice in verse 1, he begins with, for this reason, and then he only picks it up in verse 14 again. Look at the beginning of verse 14. It says, for this reason, I bow my knees. That is what he was about to do. He was about to pray for them. He says, okay, but perhaps the believers will be unsettled by my imprisonment. Let me pause and share the message of my apostleship, of God's plans, God's purpose, God's purpose in the church. And let me encourage these, these often struggling and doubting believers. So what might, so this is the mistake we should make. We should, or not to make, 
We shouldn't just read this and say, oh, that's interesting biographical information. That's interesting, Paul. We should read it with the eyes of this is meant to encourage me. This is meant to give me strength for suffering when we see suffering or when we would suffer ourselves for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of Christ. So what Paul is simply doing here is he's gently lifting the eyes of the, the weak sheep off of him, off of little Paul in little Rome, in a little prison, and he wants to gently lift their eyes to an almighty, all-gracious, eternal God and say, look to your God, dear Christian. Look, this is not somehow thwarting God's purpose. God is working all things according to the counsel of his will. And by the way, this is the same way you deal with general suffering. So this, although this is specifically meant for Christians in persecution, I believe this is the same kind of theology we need in general suffering as well, to lift our eyes higher to God and to his attributes and to look at who he is and what he is doing and that he hasn't changed. Our lives change in a moment. But God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Well, I could summarize this entire section with this one phrase. In persecution, in suffering, look to God. Look to God and His purposes, unchanging purposes. That's the section in a nutshell. And, but specifically, we're going to look at four reasons why you should not lose heart. Four reasons why you should not lose heart in your suffering. Paul says, I'm suffering for God's gospel, I'm suffering as God's apostle, I'm suffering for God's plans, and I'm suffering for God's church. Those are the reasons why we should not, or the church, yeah, but also us, should not lose heart. So here's the first reason why we should not lose heart is Paul is saying, listen, I'm suffering for God's gospel. This is his message, this is his gospel, and this he spells out to us in verses 1 to 6. But let's read verse 1 and 2 together. It says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. Paul says that we should in no way think that just because he is in prison, that that somehow invalidates his message, somehow makes the gospel now false. No, the gospel of grace was given to Paul as a steward of God's grace. That word steward is the Greek word for a house manager. Someone that's managing the affairs of the house. So Joseph was managing Potiphar's house. He was a steward. He was managing the affairs of the house, that everything runs smoothly. Paul says, I'm God's household manager of God's grace. I, I've been given the grace to preach God's grace. And I was to make sure, Paul says, I'm making sure that the gospel of grace is accurately taught, accurately deposited to this church. And there was a definite process. We looked at this right throughout from chapter 1, but look at this process again. There's a definite order, right, in verse 3 to 4. Look at verse 3. It says, How the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive. Do you see the steps here? Here are the steps. A careful Bible student will mark them in order. The first step is in verse 3. It says that how the mystery was made known to me by Revelation. That's the first step of this gospel. This gospel doesn't come from us. It's not our invention, our idea. This is a revelation from God. Paul's words are God's words. And when you read mystery, remember, don't think difficult to understand, like women are a mystery. Okay, don't think like that. Rather, mystery here means something which is impossible to understand unless God makes it known. 
And that's exactly what this is. This is not something difficult to understand. This is something impossible to understand until God revealed it. And when he revealed it, it's no longer a mystery. Now we understand. You could say, if, if, if this is God's secret, it's an open secret. It's like, okay, this was secret in the past, but now it's open. Now everybody can read this. Everybody can know this. That's what we do with this revelation. Look at verse 3. It says, oh, sorry, before that, by revelation, as I have written briefly. That's the blessedness of this mystery. We don't have to try to feel it or have an emotional response to it. Like we, This was written down for our study. We can make sure that we understand this correctly. Paul wrote it down. That's beautiful. Now believers all over the world can study the same gospel and we can get the same gospel, right? That's why there's incredible unity. When you visit a Chinese Christian or an American Christian or a, wherever you go, you will hear that the same gospel is believed. There's this massive, amazing unity between true believers because it's written down for us, right? And when Paul says written down, he's speaking specifically here of Ephesians, but also remember the whole New Testament. He also wrote Galatians, Romans, 1 Corinthians, and the rest. Not the rest, but many others. But now what must happen? Verse 4, this is what you should do with it when you read this. <laughs> you, you and I must now take it up and we must read it. Oh, how happy believers would be if we would pay much more closer attention to the written word instead of seeking new revelation outside of the word. We would be so much more happier, so much more stable, so much more not driven about or tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. The mystery is written and we can read it. That's, that's a good thing. So when someone comes to you and says, I found the mystery, I found the true secret to the Christian life, on how to live the Christian life, and God has only revealed it to me. And then he goes and speaks on about visions or dreams, speaking about things outside of God's word, reject it outright. You can reject it outright. God's secret is not just for his favorites, as if he has like special children that he just whispers in their ears what the mystery is, how to please God, how to live the Christian life. No, he wants, this is an open secret for all of his children. He says, I want all of you to know this. What, what should happen when we read it? Look at verse 4, the end. It says, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. You can understand it. Right, how often, I know Peter says in 2 Peter, there are some things that are hard to understand in Peter, in Paul. It's like Peter reading the Bible, like, Paul, what are you doing? Why, is it, why did you make it so hard for us? Right, but listen, he says, no. If you pray, if you ask God to open your eyes, remember he even prayed in chapter 1, verse 15, that God might give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation that we might know this. But when we read it with humility, with an open heart, and with correct Bible interpretation, you can perceive Paul's insight. You can have the very insight of Paul in yourself. Right, that just goes straight against postmodernism. Right, postmodernism says, no, your truth is your truth. You can never perceive my truth. We can never perceive an all truth. No, the truth is the truth. The truth doesn't, doesn't change over the decades or over the cultures. No, truth stays true. And that's the point. It's amazing to think that by us reading this book, we can have the very insight of Paul. We can understand God's word. And then Paul says, not just been revealed to Paul alone. Look at verse 5. It says, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations. It was a secret but it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets 
by the Spirit. In the Old Testament, this was a secret. This couldn't be understood. It was a mystery, like looking in a mirror dimly, right? But now it's clear. All God's apostles and prophets, they know it, and their teaching is the foundation of the church. We saw in chapter 2, verse 20. Now, what is this secret? What is this mystery? Verse 6. Look at verse 6. It says, This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Paul is basically just summarizing the second half of Ephesians 2, verses 11 to 22. He's summarizing. Gentiles are fellow heirs. They have the same inheritance as Jews. We are all God's people through faith in Christ. Not through our works, not through circumcision, not through law-keeping. Simple faith makes us fellow heirs. We are members of the same body because we are united to one another. We're not just united to Christ, we're also united to one another and we are fellow partakers of the promise, which points to that eternal life. We have a, a promise that God is returning for us, that we will spend all of our eternities in eternal gladness, in eternal increasing gladness. And all of this comes through the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done for us. Now, here's the point. Remember, you can now get lost in the weeds. You can get lost in all the details of this. Remember the big point. What is Paul trying to do? He's trying to say, don't lose heart over my sufferings. And this is what he's saying. He's saying, listen, my suffering doesn't nullify the fact that this is God's gospel. My suffering is no proof that this is a false gospel. So, beloved, suffering doesn't prove that something is false and prosperity doesn't prove that something is true isn't that how we tend to think when it's going well i must be doing something right because look how blessed i am look how many people are here look how and when we're struggling when we're a little when we, we suffer we're like what's wrong with me isn't remember what the friends of job did that's their theology job you're suffering because you sinned something must be wrong because this is not how god how God's children will look like. There must be sin in you. That's why you're suffering like this. And that was a lie. That was wrong. That was false. Another example. Think of the rich man and Lazarus. Rich man had comfort, had everything his money could own, and he died and he went to hell. Lazarus, even the dogs, licked his sores. And when he died, he went to heaven, went to paradise. You see, the absence of trials doesn't mean God is okay with you. In fact, it could be judgment if he leaves you alone. And the overwhelming number of trials doesn't mean God is displeased with you. The truth stays the truth. God doesn't change. His gospel doesn't change. So, beloved, do not lose heart when we suffer for Christ's sake. That doesn't change the fact that Christ died, that he rose again, that he is God. It stays the same. That anchor will hold. When we will suffer for the gospel, remember that. The truth stays the truth. Jesus died, and we can trust and follow him. That's the first reason. Don't lose heart, beloved. Paul was suffering for God's gospel. But here's the second reason Paul gives not to lose heart, and that is Paul is also suffering as God's apostle, as God's apostle in verses 7 to 9. Look at verse 7. It says, of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. Did you notice there's a similarity between verse 2 and verse 7? Okay, what's it? Verse 2, Paul says, I'm a steward of God's grace. In verse 7, he says, I'm a minister according to the gift of God's grace. 
So Paul is not just a house manager managing the grace. He is also dependent on that very grace for his ministry. He's been made a minister by that grace. The same grace that he's proclaiming is the grace that empowers him and strengthens him to do the work. And here Paul highlights three aspects of his calling as an apostle in this section. The first aspect of this calling is that his apostleship was an effectual calling. It was an effectual calling into the ministry, into the apostleship. Look at verse 7 again. It says, there's a key word there, of this gospel, I was made. He says, I didn't make myself. How many people make themselves apostles, make themselves prophets? Paul says, I didn't want this. This wasn't what I wanted. God made me a minister. Remember there, the Greek word diakonos. I'm a table. God made me a table waiter of the gospel. I'm a deacon by God's grace. And notice how he writes this. It's very interesting. At the end of verse 7, it says, According to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. He says, God gave me the gift of an apostleship. It's a gift by his power. Isn't that a strange way to talk about a gift? Now, we don't talk like that. Imagine I say to, I gave Jordan the gift of dinosaurs by my power. Okay, that's a bit weird. <laughs> like, right? That, that doesn't, like a gift... What we, when we hear the word gift, we're tempted to just think something you can accept or reject. But this gift is different. It's not like our gift where we can give it and then someone could reject it. Paul says, I was given this gift by the power of God. I, I, I couldn't refuse it. This was an effectual calling. I was effectually drawn into this apostleship by the gift of his power. But it was a sovereign gift. Remember for Paul, it's very important to remember, his conversion and his calling as an apostle are like two sides of the same coin. Because it was at his conversion when God, called, when God called him as well to be an apostle. Just turn with me to Acts. So keep your finger in, in Ephesians. Just turn with me to Acts chapter 9. Just turn with me to Acts chapter 9. Just read this and see how this calling of Paul coincides with his conversion as well. Acts chapter 9. Let's just read from verse 10. It says, Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him, so that he might regain his sight. Very human. Ananias said, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. Lord, I don't want to pray for him. Is he going to kill me? <laughs> and here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, listen to this, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entreated the house, entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Do you see? Jesus chose him at his conversion. You are my apostle. I'm sending you to the... I'll show you how much you will suffer for my sake. This was God's eternal plan. In, an, in another letter, Galatians 1, verse 15, Paul talks like this as well. He says... But when he who had set me apart before I was born, 
Just let that sink. Just let that fall on you. I was set apart to be an apostle before I was born. But to be an apostle, you have to be saved. <laughs> you can't be an apostle without being a Christian. So that's just a package deal. You're going to be saved. You will be an apostle. It says, and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me. In the Greek, not to me, in me. God was pleased to reveal the son in Paul, the eyes of his heart, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. You see, the chief persecutor of the church was chosen by Jesus to become the chief deacon, the chief servant of the gospel. How did that happen? According to the working of his power. So it was an effectual call. The second one, it's also a gracious call. It was a gracious calling. Paul did not deserve this. Notice these stunning words in verse 8. Look at verse 8. It says, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. I think the King James does a little bit better job here. The King James really captures the sense. It says, Unto me, who am less than the least of all the saints. Okay, that's bad grammar, but good theology, right? How can you be less, or bad logic maybe, I don't know. <laughs> Paul says, here's the least. If there's the least Christian, I'm less than him. I'm lesser, I'm, I'm a lesser, right? I'm a lesser least Christian, right? I'm, I'm at the very bottom. So imagine you could put Christians on a rank, right? Where would we put Paul? Right at the top, right? Like, Paul, you wrote the Bible, come on. Like, you can't be the le lesser than the least. Aren't you just, maybe, maybe in the middle, no, Paul says, listen, I'm not at the top. I'm at the very bottom. I'm at the bottom bottom. I'm very, very low. And if, if we would be surprised by that, he would have said, have you forgotten so easily who I was? Have you forgotten what I did? What sins I committed? In another place, 1 Timothy 1 verse 12, he, he talks of his conversion as well. He says, 1 Timothy 1 verse 12, says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful pointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I'd acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And then again, notice that he says, of whom I am the foremost. Not I was the foremost, I am, present tense, I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. He was the chief of sinners because he killed Christians. Paul murdered, murdered believers in hot hatred. It was a hot hatred for Christians, a hot hatred for Jesus, the so-called Jesus. He blasphemed him. And then God chooses the chief of sinners and make him the chief servant of the very Christians that he was killing. And you see how that is also encouraging for us? Listen, this was grace, God's grace. Suffering is in no way a sign that God has abandoned us or that God cannot turn, turn it for good. Here's the last one. Paul's calling was effectual, gracious, but also purposeful. It was purposeful. God gave him two tasks specifically to do in verse 8 to 9. Look at verse 8. It says, to me... Though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given, number one, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and, number two, 
to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. God chose little Paul to do a massive task, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. That first task you can summarize as evangelism. I'm calling you to, 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 to evangelize the Gentiles. And secondly, God has also called Paul to bring to light for everyone, Jew and Gentile, what is the plan of the mystery? That is discipleship. Paul, I'm calling you to be a missionary to the Gentiles and then to disciple the churches. So that's what Paul says. Listen, do not lose heart over my suffering. Look at what God has done with me. Look at how he saved me. Look at how he called me. It was an effectual calling. It was a gracious calling. It's a purposeful calling. Don't lose heart. If he can take a chief sinner, a chief persecutor, a chief enemy of the Christian church, and with, with no effort, turn him around, make him the chief deacon, the, the one that's the very least of all the saints, and make him a, a, a Paul. Don't lose heart. God is not threatened by little Saul. Right? God is not threatened by ISIS. He's not threatened by Muslims or by, by any authority in our country, in our world that is threatening us and to kill us. So beloved, for you, why are you scared when this is your God, when this is your Father in heaven? Why are you fearful when nothing can touch you but by His permission? Why are you fearful when God loves you more than you love yourself? Why are you fearful? So don't lose heart, because Paul says, my preaching, I'm, this is God's gospel, I am God's apostle. But the third reason not to lose heart is that Paul is suffering for God's plans. He's suffering for God's plans, which cannot fail. Paul continues to expand this plan of mystery, and he adds just a random attribute of God. And when, when you see that, don't think it's random. Don't just think, you should ask yourself, why? Why this attribute? Notice at the end of verse 9, again, says, and to bring to light to everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Again, doesn't that just seem random? I'm making known the plans of the God who created all things. Why add that at the end? Well, think with me. This is the effect it would have had on us. This is God's plans, and it's the plans of a God who has made everything out of nothing who has created, like we lose our wonder sometimes at this simple fact that God made everything we see, everything we sit on, everything we taste, everything we experience is made by God with no effort, with speaking. Nothing can frustrate his plans. Nothing can, is against, God isn't, there's nothing stronger than God. Or in the words of Job, at the end of Job, when, when, when God showed himself to Job, in Job 42 verse 2, it says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Psalm 115 verse 3 says, Our God is in the heavens. He does what all that he pleases. So obviously the common question we might wonder is, but why does God then allow suffering for his children? If God is all-powerful, why doesn't he release Paul from prison? Like he released Peter in Acts. So God could do that, right? If he wanted to release Paul, he could have. Beloved, here it is. Are you ready? Suffering is not frustrating God's plans, but establishing them. God's, for God, suffering is not frustrating his plans, but establishing him. Think of the greatest example of all. 
Think of the cross. Think of the cross. The greatest suffering. None of us can understand the depth of the pain, the depth of not just the physical pain, but the emotional, the, the spiritual agony. The greatest suffering has produced the greatest good. It was, in Paul's case, it was the same. Paul says, I'm in prison. Listen to Philippians 1 verse 12. In another letter, he says this, I want you to know, brothers, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. You see how it works? Instead of suffering, doing what we would expect it to do to stop the gospel, it actually makes it grow faster. It makes it grow bigger. It advances. As Benji also said last week, the, as Tertullian said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. God uses the blood of his children to plant the church. It is as if the more people are persecuting us, the more people want to destroy us, the just bigger we get and the, the more people get saved by God's grace. That must be incredibly frustrating <laughs> for the devil. Okay, wait, let, let, let's rather make them comfortable. Maybe that will work now. And Paul says this very thing. Look at verse 13 at the very end. It says, So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. His sufferings wasn't random. It's for their glory. God intended his suffering to bring the gospel to more people, to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, to bring them to glory. So, beloved, do not lose heart over the sufferings of the gospel. This is God's gospel. This is God's apostle. And God's plans are made by the one who has created all things. And here's the final reason. And it's going to overlap a little bit with the third reason as well. But Paul says, don't lose heart because my suffering is for God's church. It's for God's church. Look at verse 10 to 11. It says, So that... Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. It says, this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. So Paul is suffering for the church, which is God's plan to glorify his wisdom to whom? Interesting, to whom? To the rulers and the authorities, to angelic beings. So it's as if... God wanted to save and make a church to show his glory to the angels, the good and the bad angels. Remember what 2 Peter 1.12 said. It says, It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you, the prophets, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Angels were longing to understand this wonder that God would take Abraham and call him and promise him that in him all the nations will be blessed. They were looking in and peering in to see how can God take a Jew and a Gentile and now make them one because it promises that in him all the nations will be blessed. How is it going to work? And in wonder they saw the Son of God coming and becoming a man. They saw him crucified, risen from the dead, ascended to the Father. And now they see this marvel, this church, Jew and Gentile, two enemies. They were not supposed to work. This is not supposed to be working and now they are one body. Only God could have done this. Only God could have accomplished this. And the wisdom of God is displayed. And that word manifold, don't forget that, it's like multifaceted. Like a, like a diamond that has multi-layers. God wanted to have his church multifaceted to see the wisdom of God from different angles and different perspectives. 
So for the angels, it's a wonder, but for the demons, it's a pronouncement of judgment. It's a pronouncement of woe, because now we see the first picture of God's new creation. When the demons look at us, they see that God is busy making all things new, of which we are the first fruits. We are the first taste of heaven. And so what does that mean for them? Their judgment is sure. When the devil looks at us, when angels look at us, the demons look at us, they shudder, they hate us, and they realize that nothing is going to stop this plan. They cannot escape God's judgment. But what Paul really wants us to, to make sure we get is verse 11. Just look at that again. It says, he says this, all of this, that the church, my gospel, the, the apostleship, he says this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The church was not plan B because Israel failed, because God wanted Israel to really, really work. And just they were just too stubborn, too stiff-necked. And so God says, okay, let's, let's try this new thing. Let's try the church now. What does it say? This is according to God's eternal purpose. It wasn't a new purpose. It was an eternal one. The church was plan A from the start. The cross was plan A from the start. This was part of God's plan. This is always, the church has always been on God's timeline. Right? To glorify his name, to glorify his wisdom. So do you see what Paul is doing here? He's lifting up our eyes from our suffering, from his suffering in prison, and turning them to God, to his eternal plans. He's saying, stop looking at little Paul in little prison, in little Rome. Stop looking at this little suffering and these little lives. Although we feel like it's not little, right? We are not want to minimize the pain, but in comparison... In comparison, the eternal weight of glory, it's not worth comparing, Paul says. Look up, see how God is working out his eternal plan. Beloved, I'm, I'm shocked by this. I, I'm stunned when I read the Bible. This is a message of the Bible over and over again. I was reading Judges, and you just see this decay, right? He says everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. That's South Africa. Everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. And there's injustice, and it just goes down and down and down. And it's just, we almost feel like, what's the use? What's the hope? And then the book of Ruth starts how? Verse 1, in the days of the judges. At the same time, the nation is corrupt. There's no hope, right? There's no king in Israel. Everyone's doing right in their own eyes. God is preparing the Savior. Through Ruth came Obed and Obed and, right, David came. God, in the middle of that intense suffering, he's working out his purpose think of christ christ is born and at his birth and at his childhood children under two-year-olds are being slaughtered left and right right you would be looking at that it's like where's god god's here he's already on earth he's been born but at the same time children are being slaughtered the cross imagine the cross imagine suffering imagine 70 a.d when the temple was destroyed right we just look at history we just look at our own history look at our world look at the wars look at and we just tempted to feel where is god this doesn't seem like it's working god doesn't look like he's in control but this is the history all along god is not frustrated he is always at work and beloved get this that same timeline where abraham was on david was on Christ was on, Paul was on, we are on that same timeline. We are there. 2022, that's on the timeline. God saw that before he made the, the world, before he made Adam and Eve. 
You were already on his timeline. And today was on his timeline, even before he made anything. The church was on his timeline. So what's the point, beloved? Look up. Look up. Don't get caught. Don't be so overwhelmed by this suffering and this corruption and the injustice and all these things that are happening to us and forgetting our God, forgetting who He is, forgetting what He has always done and what He will do and what He will do when Jesus comes again. And then Paul just reminds us again of our amazing blessing in verse 12. Look at verse 12. It says, In, in Jesus, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. In Christ, we have boldness, we have access, we have confidence to the very presence of God. We can come freely wherever we are. And this too is something only God could have accomplished in His wisdom. We are the new creation, the new humanity, the new people of God. So beloved, praise God. The church is God's church. He will sustain you. He will keep you in, our, in your sufferings. So why should you not lose heart over your suffering? Paul says there is a God in the heavens who has an eternal plan, eternal purposes, which cannot be frustrated, and he is working it out. He says, look at what God did with me. I was, I was Saul. I was killing Christians. I wasn't looking for this, and he chose me. He saved me, and now I'm a steward of his grace, of his eternal plans, of this eternal gospel. Beloved, learn. Learn to use these type of truths. Learn to use the attributes of God as, and preach them to yourself. Learn to say to your soul, why are you downcast, O my soul? Hope in whom? In God. Hope in Him, for I shall, promise, I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we, we are so thankful that you are mindful and you know us, Lord. You know our frame. You know that we are but dust. And Lord, so you have compassion on us and you, your heart burns hot within your, your chest, Lord, for us. Thank you that you haven't left us like orphans. You have given us the Holy Spirit. You've given us the, ho the hope of eternal life. Lord, and even though we suffer, even though we go through trials and persecutions and sufferings of all kinds, of various kinds. Thank you, Lord, for your promises that says that you will that nothing will ever be able to separate us from your love. That we are heading home. Lord, this is not our home. This is not paradise on earth or heaven on earth by by a, by not not by a far stretch, Lord, but you are our home. You have been our dwelling place from generation to generation, and you are eternal. So, Lord, please teach us, Lord, how to not be so quickly shaken in our faith, but to look up, to trust, to trust in who you are and what you have done. Thank you for your word, Lord. Your word, your word teaches us faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ, Lord. You strengthen our faith when we read your word. Oh Lord, I pray that you will strengthen our weakness, that you will help us to run the race set before us with endurance, keeping our eyes fixed upon the Lord Jesus who is the author and the perfecter of our faith. And Lord, we worship you for that. We thank you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.